You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and on today's show... We have had the biggest social unrest in Panama since the redemocratization. It was a 40-day general strike uh, with the participation of students, churches, environmentalists. It's been challenging because the labor law in Thailand is, is not great for migrant workers, but we've been able to negotiate health and safety agreements directly with vessel owners. If you don't have workers at the table representing our interests, then you only have people who are beholden to the shareholders as stakeholders to the FAA. People make the joke of like, how are you going to, how can you corral a bunch of improvisers or, or comedy educators? Yeah, you can. We did. You can. It was three countries, or th- two countries, three cities. It was pretty cool. This NLRB is following the spirit of its creation, yes. and it's not a friendly entity to these companies, and so they're they're basically trying to figure out a way around it. And again, that is happening because of who sits in the White House, right? Like- Gary was on the FLT, as forklift trucks are known. Had his two tokens worth of free beer at lunchtime, and then back behind the wheel. Got distracted and went straight into a pile of pallets by the side of the tank in which beer is being stored before being filtered. This week's featured shows are Labor Start, the official podcast of Labor Start, the news and campaigning website of the international trade union movement. That's a brand new podcast and a brand new member of the network. Labor Link, the podcast that's about the brave individuals organizing the workers who make our stuff. It's Time Live, the official podcast of SkyWest flight attendants organizing their own union. Third and Fairfax, news and information about the Writers Guild of America West. Labor Radio on KBU FM, radio of the working class, by the working class, and for the working class, coming to us from Portland, Oregon. And our final segment is from Union Days, longtime trade unionist Simon Sapper's stories of People, places, scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Hello, my name is Eric Lee and I'm the founding editor of Labor Start. Today I'm talking with Carolina Dantas of the Building and Woodworkers International, who is based at the moment in Guatemala, and we're going to speak about an extraordinary situation that has arisen in Panama, which is the subject of a Labor Start campaign. Carolina, can you tell us, first, thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Eric, for the invitation. And and can you tell us a bit about what is this uh, fight in Panama all about? Yes. So last year, in a really fast way, the Congress approved a 40-year concession to the transnational company First Mining. It's a Canadian-based company for uh, copper mining extraction in Panama. It was uh, the biggest open pit uh, mining extraction in the whole Central America in the middle of a reserve, which would impact, uh, have serious impact in in the environment in the region, both for Central America and South America, as well as uh, some serious issues related to the sovereignty of the country, because the way the concession was written, 
it would give the company the power to decide over the government on the whole concession area about labor issues, about even uh, disappropriation uh, of land. Uh, so uh, the leading uh, of the protests uh, were the construction union Sontrax, which is affiliated to the BWI, the Building and Woodworkers International. But uh, we have had the biggest social unrest in Panama since the redemocratization. It was a 40-day general strike uh, with the participation of students, churches, environmentalists. Uh, the whole society joined, really. It was massive. Uh, taking the streets against this concession, defending Panama's sovereignty, defending its environment. Uh, so the protests were successful. So uh, the Supreme Court declared this uh, law unconstitutional. However, since then, as uh, the construction union, Centrix, was the, the protagonist of this uh, protest that actually took away uh, this uh, concession to the transnational company, uh, they are being punished. They are being persecuted by the government. Uh, on the 13th of uh, November last year, uh, the bank accounts of the union were frozen. They cannot receive affiliation fees. They cannot pay their staff, uh, their bills or anything. And their leaders are being uh, public uh, uh, persecuted. Uh, they are uh, being accused of crimes against uh, the country's economy uh, because of the general strike. They are being personally responsibilized for all of the financial damage that a strike has, uh, but uh, they are being accused of terrorism. The government is calling uh, the protest as, as terrorism for defending labor, social and environmental rights. Let, let me ask you, let me pause you for a second. Were the protests violent in any way or was it a peaceful protest? Uh, they were peaceful protests that were brutally repressed, actually. Uh, so we've had uh, um, gases uh, and uh, there were uh, hundreds of people imprisoned. Uh, we have had uh, people also hurt as a, a, a consequence of this repression, state repression. And we have also had three uh, unionists protests who died uh, in, in this uh, conflict as well. Oh, my. And, and and at a certain point, I guess in December, maybe in January, BWI came to Labor Start and asked for our help to get an online campaign up. Has that campaign and has BDI's other activities had any influence on the Panamanian government since then? Uh, so there was an opening from the government. They are uh, actually inviting Sontrix to start a dialogue. It's not solved. We still need to keep uh, the campaign. Uh, but we've had uh, just right now, a few minutes ago, we have called a press conference for Monday at 9 a.m. In, in Panama, we are going to also officially present all the support we have received right now. And in parallel, we also went to the ILO uh, to present uh, a demand in terms of uh, freedom of association, in terms of complying with Conventions 89. Uh, of the, the ILO against the Panamanian state, which was also well received by the ILO, and they have called the Panamanian government to explain themselves. Carolina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. 
Welcome to the LaborLink podcast, where we interview organizers and advocates dedicated to the workers who make our stuff. Because these workers connect us all, these interviews will touch on many aspects of the global economy, inequality, and the power imbalances that perpetuate workers' struggles. My name is Judy Gearhart, and I'll be your host. Labor rights. Since the first media exposés about slavery at sea, a lot of money from the U.S., the EU, and private foundations has gone to support programs for human trafficking victims. Multiple laws and policies have been put in place by governments and corporations to reduce the risk of human trafficking in the seafood industry, yet the problems persist. Thailand, which in 2013 had the largest fleet among Southeast Asian nations, has been a proving ground for some of these initiatives. In this episode, we'll hear about the Fisher Rights Network, or FRN. In this episode, I interviewed John Harto from the ITF, who went to Thailand in 2016 and helped with the initial outreach to organizers. Can you tell me how the FRN got started? What kind of support did you have and what were the key motivating factors for you and, and really for the, the fishers that started joining? Well, in 2017, the ITF started an organizing project in Thailand with mostly migrant fishers from Myanmar and Cambodia. And we started gaining traction and, and building fairly decent, strong group of core fisher leaders. And in 2018, the ITF launched the Fishers' Rights Network because we understood the global race to the bottom uh, for fisher conditions, for conditions in the fishing industry. And the ITF represents close to 200,000 fishers worldwide that are protected under a collective bargaining agreement. And I think the reasons for starting the project were twofold. One, we wanted to raise standards and change conditions in the industry, but also protect the gains we've made in fisher union CBAs around the globe. And so with those two ideas in mind, really, that means organizing the unorganized, including migrant fishers, wherever they are, um, and pushing hard to raise standards in the industry and protect the gains that we've made and start to expand on the low and poor condition that already exists around the world. Since we launched in 2018 with the the main center here in Songkla uh, on the port, um, we've opened two other centers, one in Renong on the Burmese border and one in Trat on the Cambodian border. Um, we opened a fourth center in Trumpon um, in 2022. And we have plans to open two more organizing centers uh, in the next six months, one by the end of this year and another in the beginning of next year. We've organized since 2018 over 4,000 migrant fishers into the Fishers Rights Network. We've been bargaining for agreements with vessel owners and also agitating for supply chain agreements with large multinationals since we started. It's been it's been challenging because the labor law in Thailand is is not great for migrant workers. It it gives migrant workers a different status than than worker than Thai national. But we've been able to negotiate 
health and safety agreements and other collectively bargained agreements with directly with vessel owners where we have the density required to do that. So I'll give you an example. If a vessel owner has five boats in his fleet uh, and we represent, you know, uh, close to 100% of fishers that are crewing those vessels and those fishers are listing their, you know, 10 main demands that they want to bargain over, we're in a strong negotiating position and we've been able to get the, the vessel owner to the table uh, in some cases down and negotiate an, an agreement. This next segment comes from It's Time Live, the official podcast of SkyWest Flight Attendants. The support out there has just been fantastic. We've had some great conversations with people, uh, with our flight attendants at the airports. Um, and it's pretty clear that we need and we want a real say at SkyWest for our flight attendants. Um, but I am really excited uh, for all the people on the panelists today that are here with us. And of course, Sarah, who is the uh, international president of the AFA flight attendants. So Kelly, let's move on to Kelly Frieders. Hi there, Sarah. Um, this is a, just a more basic question, and honestly, we get it all the time. Um, if at SkyWest we already have better pay and things like boarding pay that other regionals have without that do have a union, doesn't that just show that we're better off without a union? Um, no. <laughs> um, and thank you for the question, Kelly. Um, so when you organize, the company cannot retaliate against you for organizing. So what that does is it essentially locks in everything that you have and you like today and you and you bargain up from there. So if you have a stronger platform to bargain from, you're better off. But the reality is that, you know, one of um, the priorities of AFA is to work on breaking down this system of treating regional flight attendants as uh, subpar uh, flight attendants in the industry um, just because of the business model that the airline industry has set up. So we need to organize at SkyWest. We need to organize at Delta to have the, the power as a union to take on that business model overall. So there's, there's the you know, sort of the long-term vision and strategy around that and, and why people need to sign a union card in order to get at that issue. That's a top priority for AFA. But in addition to that, just right at SkyWest, if you like what you have today, the company can change it tomorrow without a union. And so if you don't vote for your, if you don't sign your card to get to the vote for your union and vote in your union, they, we don't get to that um, a requirement that they can't retaliate against you for doing that, which means that tomorrow, if suddenly the campaign evaporated and went away, of course, they're not going to do anything now because they're, they're trying to do a little stick and carrot campaign here. They, don't, they want people to think that they're this benevolent employer where you don't need a union. But if the, if the campaign stopped tomorrow, very likely they could take those things away overnight. And they can't do that with a contract. They can't, they can't even do that if you vote in your union before you even get it, get to the place of locking in your contract. So we're going to bargain up from there and it's just going to get better. Uh, if you are signing that card and getting to a vote, voting for the union and getting to the table to negotiate that first contract, which by the way, all happens with su the support of flight attendants around the industry supporting you every single step of the way until you ratify 
what you negotiate with the supportive professional negotiators. And only until then, when you get those improvements, would you even pay your first dollar in dues. And, and what, what else can a union do besides just pay issues and that kind of thing? Like just on the day to day, how does having a unit, having a union benefit us? Well, let me give you an example. So um, everybody saw um, the very uh, serious incident on Alaska 1282 with the, re the explosive decompression. Um, before that plane was even on the ground, our safety reps and our EAP reps were activated. We were around that crew. We were making sure that they were whisked away from the public, that we were getting social media lockdown, um, that we were getting support around them, that they were getting pay protected, um, that we were also involved in the uh, NTSB investigation. And um, that's really important because if we're not at the table, the first thing that the companies like to do is to blame the workers. They want to blame the flight attendants. They want to blame the flight attendants. They don't want to give us any credit either. So in this case, um, we were able to stop things like that from happening behind the scenes. We were able to get that support to the crew. That's, a, that's a, uh, an extreme example but that's a serious example. When you go to work and you want to be able to come home safe to your families, you got to make sure that you've got someone who has your best interests there. Look at Boeing. They have um, gone to this shareholder capitalism where they're pushing all the money out the door in, in stock buybacks. And we're seeing massive cracks in safety. If you don't have workers at the table representing our interests, then you only have people who are beholden to the shareholders in, uh, as stakeholders to the FAA. We can't have that. We've got to have everyday people who, are, who have strength because we come together in a union to be able to have, we have a, a legal voice then in all of those proceedings in the regulatory environment, with TSA, with DOT, with, with um, any of the issues that affect our jobs. Welcome back to Third and Fairfax, the official podcast of the Writers Guild of America West. Hi, everybody. This is a brand new segment on our podcast called Union Town about the labor movement and the fights our union siblings are fighting. I'm here today with Rebecca Wallenzak-Slepsky and Bina Martin from the Association of International Comedy Educators, IFT Local 6612. And we're here to talk about their most recent contract win. Hi, guys. Woo! Hi. Hi. I'm Thanks so excited for, for you. We're pretty excited, excited too. <laughs> so I guess the first thing I want to start with is like, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get here? You guys were sitting around with a bunch of your colleagues. You're, you know, you're all teachers of improv and sketch comedy. And the idea of a union comes up. What do you do next? There were some people who who kind of started the conversation with Illinois Federation of of Teachers um, at an, at another school, and and it had got brought up like, did you guys ever consider organizing? And uh, another sure, school, we, like another improv school, right? No, like, no, a, a university, no. a university. Okay, and and that got brought up, and um, it started in Chicago, and from Chicago. Um, I was then uh, texted by a couple people um, and was like, hey, we've been starting to have little meetings. What do you think? And um, I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. Um, so it was uh, they had started talking uh, unionizing before 2020. But then when everything shut down during 2020 and the teachers all came together to try to figure out how how we were going to keep the doors open of this institution and everybody came together and then 
uh, in the comedy world, uh, a bunch of things uh, uh, came to light uh, uh, and uh, everywhere in entertainment. Um, The talks got even more serious. There was a lot of tumult uh, at the Second City and the talks got more serious. So um, Kimmy Kapanik Warner got in touch with me. She was like, do you do you what do you think about unionizing? And I was like, let's do it. And so then it was my job to to do the telephone game to my fellows in in um, L.A. And then from L.A., we have people from Toronto because there were three locations. And so our Toronto people who had moved out to L.A. for their L.A. careers, they helped organize all of Toronto. So we became the first international comedy educators union, I think, ever. And we did it all over Zoom. And, um, you know, people make the joke of like, how are you going to how can you corral a bunch of improvisers or, or comedy educators? Yeah, you can. We did. You can. And it was three countries or th- two countries, three cities. It was pretty cool. Yeah. For people who who don't who aren't familiar with your fight, can you give me like just a general idea of like what you, what conditions you were fighting against or like what you were fighting for? What were the what were the things that you were like? This is why we need a union. Yeah, I mean, going back from the beginning of time, um, mm-hmm. there have always been issues the way every business, you know, kind of under operates. I don't think we're necessarily unique in that, um, that we would have, we had this sort of dichotomy where it's like, we're a family, we're an ensemble, we love each other, but also here are all the conditions. And if you don't meet them, then goodbye. Um, so I, I think we, I mean, uh, not to diminish anyone else's experience, certainly, but I think we acutely felt this because it is the antithesis of what we are supposed to be and how we treat each other and, and what we teach our students. And for the business uh, side of Second City, which is Second City Works, we, we preach to our clients um, <laughs> that this is how a bit, you know, we should all be looking after each other and all those things. And we definitely felt like that wasn't happening. The day that we announced that we uh, were unionizing, um, we also, coincidence, uh, found out that we had been bought by um, CMZ, which is a, a private equity firm known for ground, Grand Theft Auto uh, and, and other video games. Can you talk about anything about like how you feel about the contract or, or if there's gains in particular that you feel particularly excited about or proud of? Uh, is there anything you guys can say about that? On the, on the <laughs> teacher side, the average teacher got a 33% raise. Amazing. That's pretty cool. And yeah. we we wanted to make sure uh, uh, intersectional justice is a huge, huge part of the reason why we why we organized. And we we've got a bit of diversity at the Second City, but it could be a lot better. And yeah. and so uh, we were able to lift up the ocean a bit more to bring everybody up. And instead of just going seniority, seniority, we wanted to we wanted to build everybody up so we could have a better starting spot. And then hopefully with all the gains that we got contractually having to do with DEI and uh, mentoring and different things like that, hopefully it's going to be a, a a better like you said, when you play at the seeds, it's going to be a better place. Um, and yeah. hopefully we hopefully we did that for the generations after us. Rise them up, KBOO 90.7. You don't know it's a girl to ask tea. Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. On this show, we've been documenting the upsurge in labor activism and unionization that's been growing uh, encouragingly since basically the start of the pandemic, but really even before then. Um, And we've also talked about Capital's refusal to um, 
you know, they're, they're, sorry, their furious attempts to maintain control over their workforces. Capital has begun to deploy a new tactic aimed at essentially uh, making an end run around the entire concept of labor rights by attempting to use the courts to dismantle the federal agency tasked with protecting employees. The most recent such attempt came from e-commerce giant and frequent flyer on this show, Amazon, fighting several accusations from prosecutors at the NLRB that they illegally retaliated against warehouse workers who unionized. Last week, the company submitted a legal filing arguing that the board itself was unconstitutional. Amazon claimed it did not break the law by limiting workers' access to the warehouse, which the NLRB said last year was a transparent effort to quash union activity. Yeah, and in its filing, the company also claimed that uh, the structure, you know, this is a quote, the structure of the NLRB violates the separation of powers, uh, end quote, particularly the limits on removal of administrative judges and the five board members appointed by the president by impeding the executive power um, in Article 2 of the United States Constitution. So Amazon also, on top of that, argued that the case against them should be dismissed because it implicates the major question doctrine, which is a new principle followed by the current Supreme Court. And this doctrine essentially asserts that um, the court can uh, evaluate administrative rulemaking by agencies and determine if the rules they put forward fall within the authorities granted to them by Congress. Yeah, this essentially means that all rulemaking by core governmental institutions like the Department of Labor, EPA, FTC, etc., are fair game to be challenged in the courts. Yeah. And I think it really hammers on a point that we've talked a lot about on the show that, you know, while I think we can get really focused on Congress and the legislative body, right, and also the judicial system. But a gigantic part of what the executive branch does is, to the point you made earlier, appoint people to the NLRB, right? Yeah. And what the NLRB enforces and how it operates is very determined by the people that sit on it. Yeah. And, you know, under Trump, obviously, it still existed. It just was a very different body and its objectives were different. And so, you know, again, we talk a lot about, like, how much is at stake in these upcoming elections and things like this. But... Unions that are attempting to do their thing over the next couple of years are going to feel a really different pull, whether that's under a second term of Biden or a second term or a split up a second term of Trump. Right? <laughs> yeah. Trump's second term in 12 years. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's very true. Like the NLRB, the makeup of it is, you know, because, yeah, like under previous administrations, they would not have supported as much of a push towards unionization that we've seen in the last four years. Mm -hmm. And so. I do think that, like, yeah, the 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 shift in in their the the board's support for labor has then led to this moment where now corporations, instead of just being like, well, we'll game the system and we'll you know yeah. use them to to quash unionization, they're now like, okay, well, that's not working, so we have to figure out a way to, to get rid of them entirely. Yeah, yeah, like this NLRB is following the spirit of its creation, yes. and it's not a friendly entity to these companies, and so they're. They're basically trying to figure out a way around it. And again, that is happening because of who sits in the White House, right? Like there are more important things than just, you know, signing and or, or vetoing bills that come up, right? There's, there are so many appointees and different things like this that are important to the executive branch. And obviously we've talked about that with all the judicial appoint, appointments that, yeah. you know, Trump made. But, you know, I, I do think the NLRB is a really another good example of that. Yeah, and one that you don't think about as often, I mean, unless you listen to this show regularly, one mm -hmm. that you don't really think about as often, but honestly might have more of an impact on the day-to-day -day life of working people in this country than, you know, many, most other people appointed yeah. by the federal government.
This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. Drink crops up an awful lot in workplace issues. I suppose it seems strange nowadays, but our column work were much more closely connected, even as recently as 30 years ago, than they are now. When I worked at one trade union's national headquarters, there was actually a full bar attached to the staff canteen. And you knew which colleagues were, shall we say, less productive after lunch. The perils of mixing free beer at work with the proliferation of forklift trucks was amply illustrated by a near-miss crash one Wednesday afternoon. Gary was on the FLT, as forklift trucks are known had his two tokens worth of free beer at lunchtime and then back behind the wheel, got distracted and went straight into a pile of pallets by the side of the tank in which beer is being stored before being filtered. The impact violently nudged the pallets, which in turn upended a worker over the balustrade and splash into the beer. It could, of course, have been much worse, as everyone struggling not to giggle readily agreed. The beer-soaked employee was heard to bemoan his failure to be holding a pint glass at the time. But it kind of made the argument that heavy machinery and booze don't go well together. Tokens were replaced by vouchers, redeemable in the brewery shop for consumption off-site. The beer tank also sometimes, in yesteryear, used to attract rats, who would occasionally fall off the balustrade and into the beer. They'd drown and rise to the surface, but bottom first. The colloquial term being rat asked apparently comes from this. This has been Union Days, scenes from a Union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Hey, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a tiny fraction of the amazing programs aired over the last week and more than 200, count them, 200 Labour Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on X, Facebook, Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast edited this week. Patrick Dixon and I produce the show. Our social media guru, as always, Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. We'll see you next week.